When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello, brave mamas. Are you ready to get the lowdown about everything women's health? I'm your host, Steph Thompson, and I can't wait to share our special guest with you today. Today, we are chatting with Sophie Walker. She is the creator and host of the hugely successful Australian Birth Stories podcast. And today's tea fits in perfectly with her calm and gentle persona. My cup of Madame Flavors deeply relaxing could actually be helpful for this episode because as we know, childbirth can be anything but relaxing. I'm also banking on the passion flower and lemon myrtle to help me with my own stress during this next round of lockdowns. Mama's trying to work from home. We see you. Oh, well, welcome, Sophie Walker. It's so lovely to be talking with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Let's jump straight in, shall we? So let's find out who was Sophie before becoming a mama. Uh, so I studied public health and I used to work, uh, yeah, before having my first son, I worked at the Peter McCallum Cancer Institute on a breast cancer study. So I used to interview oh, different nice. women who had um, a family history and a um, genetic predisposition to getting breast and ovarian cancer so I used to interview them so that's yeah that's what I did career-wise beforehand. Was that with the brachia gene? Yeah yeah it was yeah. I think a lot of women understand breast cancer a lot more obviously because of the Jane McGrath Foundation and the pink ribbon and it's so easily recognizable now isn't it? Yeah it is which is great I think we can all support each other more and um, have a better understanding. Yeah, and I don't know if I know many women who haven't either directly or indirectly been affected by someone with breast cancer within their inner circle. So that's, you know, it's huge, right? Yeah, yeah, it really is. You would yeah, have seen so. many women. So um, would you mind sharing us, I mean, you've got three beautiful children, what your own birthing experiences were like? Yeah, so I went in really confidently into my first birth. So I've got three boys and my eldest is now seven and then my middle son is five and my youngest is two. Um, but when I had my seven-year-old Nick, um, yeah, I went in really confident. I thought, oh, and I know everything. I've always been interested in babies and always been interested in pregnancy. And I thought, yeah, I'm not going to have drugs. I'll have this beautiful intervention-free birth. And um, I even went into our antenatal appointments at the hospital thinking, oh, these guys know nothing. I'm going to be fine. Um, <laughs> and um, As you do. Yeah. Yep. And I went, uh, I think I went to about, yeah, I think I was about 40 weeks and I went in for um, 
my antenatal appointment, I was going through midwifery care at our public hospital. So I had my own midwife and I said, oh, I've been having sort of cramps on and off in the night. I'm not sure if anything's happening. And she checked me and she said, oh, you're four centimeters. You're going to have a baby this afternoon. And I thought, oh, this is oh. fine. I've hardly even, I wasn't even <laughs> sure if I was in labor. This is going to be fine. And I'd read, um, Juju Sundan's book, Birth Skills. I'm not sure if you know of that one. Yes. She uses a lot of physical movement and sort of distracting the body. Um, so I went home with my husband. I had the TENS machine on and we were walking up and down the driveway being really active, thinking I've probably only got about three or four hours of labour and then this will be all finished. Um, this but my labour ended up going for about 36 hours. So I wish that midwife had never uh, given me a bit of a time frame. So yeah. I went back into the birth center later that night and I'd only progressed one centimeter and I thought I'd be told, you know, you're good to push. Um, so I had, my first son was 4.4 kilos. So I think he was just a really big boy and he wasn't in an ideal position. He just wasn't getting enough pressure on my cervix to dilate. So um, yeah, we tried everything. And then uh, the midwife said, look, we're probably going to have to put Sinto up and just try and get these contractions a bit more consistent. And by then I'd kind of used every tool that I had and totally lost my confidence and said, just give me the epidural oh. then I'm not playing anymore. And, um, yeah, good. Yeah. So I ended up, yeah, long pushing stage, forceps delivery and hemorrhage. So it wasn't the ideal birth that I had in mind. Um, of course. yeah, which ended up sort of shaping the career that I'm in now. So um, I wouldn't say I, I'm grateful for it. <laughs> Probably <laughs> wish that that hadn't happened, but it has uh, led me on a really beautiful path. So yeah. yeah, it's funny how people always say you've got to try and take the positives out of something negative. And it's lovely to try and do that. But at the end of the day, it's still quite a, I can only imagine that would have been um, quite full on at that point when forceps were involved and you were already maternally fatigued after 36 hours and yeah and you like you just said you lost all your confidence all the all the books you read and all the preparation that you had done you had no control over right yeah it was really stressful and my son he came around really quickly but he came out flat and blue and um I can't remember what his APGAR was, but it might have been sort of four or five and they quickly oh. got him around. But my husband was really traumatized as well. He said there was just blood everywhere and the baby was blue and limp and he just thought, oh, I think I'm going to lose them both. So it was, yeah, it was really hard birth. And my mum ran out of the room. So she was meant to be one of my best supports. She couldn't cope seeing it all either. So yeah, oh, it was, wow. it was very stressful. Um, but I went on to have two really beautiful birth experiences. So I, yeah, going into my second, it didn't deter me from wanting to give birth again. I just thought, right, I obviously wasn't as skilled as I thought I was. So I immersed myself in birth stories. And at that time, there was really not a lot of, or podcasts were still relatively new. And there yes. really wasn't a lot of Australian birth stories out there. So I was listening to an American podcast and hearing all their stories, but their, their drugs are different and their approaches and maternity styles, everything's quite different. So although they really equipped me for my second birth, which was a five hour kind of hypnobirth, um, yeah, and complete polar opposite to my first. Um, but I felt like listening to all those women's stories really got me in the right headspace to kind of approach whatever unfolded with that birth, which led me to then thinking, oh, well, there's a gap there for Australian women. So <laughs> I didn't believe, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't predict that it would become a full career, but um, 
I thought oh, I'll just put it out there and um, record my story and a few close friends and see what happens. And yeah, it's grown now. It's now had nearly 5.6 million downloads. So yeah, it was that bigger than massive. predicted. <laughs> Congratulations. And I think people could easily make that, draw, join those dots that yes, your, um, your first birthing experience to where you are now. Wow, that's an amazing journey because had you not had had that, potentially you wouldn't have had 5.6 million downloads on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could still be interviewing women with breast cancer. Like it's just so hard to tell in hindsight, but um, it definitely did lead you on that path. So what, I guess at what point did you decide that the podcast needed to be here for Australian women? Like how old was your first? Um, I think I was still working. So I was doing the podcast um, and working part-time I then worked at the council council in a sort of similar um, capacity on a different project Um, but I think Louis was probably about 18 months and um, yeah so I was back working and um, yeah just juggling expressing milk in my in my breaks and all that sort of stuff and um, I thought yeah well I'll just give it a go and I think I started to get I sort of deliberately approached a few influencers that had a higher audience and thought well if I do their birth story then all their audience will listen and that really had a huge effect on growing the audience really fast and then I just started receiving messages of um, thanks and people just saying how helpful they were finding it and how they just didn't realize something like this existed and just hearing first-hand accounts was a lot more educational for them in putting things together like they were still doing other courses and still doing the hospital classes but they felt like these first-hand accounts were really helping them and I think I feel like a large proportion of my audience are actually second and third time mums that have had perhaps a similar experience to me. And they're like, right, um, I wasn't prepared the first time. I really need to expose myself to more experiences so that I'm more empowered and um, yeah, more knowledgeable for the next. And so it's yes. been therapeutic for people to listen to them too, thinking, oh, I wasn't the only one that kind of <laughs> experienced this, that and the other. Um yeah, so it's less isolating for them. So I think, yeah, I got, I was like, oh, people are really resonating with this. And then I got it to a point where I was making the same amount of money as my part-time job at the Cancer Council. So I thought, all right, I'll take a leap and um, let my part-time job go and just work from home and do the podcast. So yeah, and then yeah. it's just continued to grow. So I've been very lucky. That's amazing. It's funny, you know, Sophie, because from the women that I've spoken to, there's a common theme the common theme is that the first birth seems to be the most difficult the one where we're going into for the first time and then the subsequent births there's either more confidence or you know what you're doing or you know what a contraction feels like and then how to um, get the baby down properly but I I mean this is not particularly a question because you probably can't answer it if you did you'd be a gazillionaire is how do we best prepare women for that first birth experience so that they don't have to go through what we did so that they can have like the second and third experiences like we did. Um, I don't know, was there anything in particular in your preparation for your second and third birth that you found that was the thing that helped me? I think that there's a lot of work needs to be done and it's not perhaps taught in most antenatal courses and classes. Um, just the mindset, because I feel like in my first birth, mentally I got to a point where oh, I've tried everything and this is not working and I don't feel in control and I'm exhausted and so therefore 
I don't care about my birth plan or my birth wishes anymore. Just give me all the drugs. And there's definitely nothing wrong with having an epidural or um, having drugs. And we sort of explore every different type of birth on the podcast. Um, Yes. But I think having um, things in your toolkit to prepare yourself mentally, both you and your birth support person, so that when you reach that, oh, it's, yeah, Rhea Dempsey calls it a crisis of confidence. When you reach that point, you're like, all right, perhaps I'm transitioning or perhaps I need to try these three other options that I had for this point. But I feel like my overall goal is what you say, to get women to have their first birth experience feeling a lot more knowledgeable and empowered. And that I feel like that's definitely starting to happen now because I think a lot of women are like, oh, you need to listen to as soon as they see a pregnant friend and they've been enjoying the show themselves, they're like, you've got to get onto this podcast. So I feel like that's slowly happening. And I think another really key component, so it's sort of the mental preparation and choosing the right care provider. I feel like people just kind of go with their friend's obstetrician or the, or the nearest or whatever the GP offers on that first test yeah. without doing their research to work out, well, is this in line with the birth that I have in my mind? Like, can I have yeah. a water birth at that hospital or can I have these options? And often that information's not kind of discovered until much further down the track where they're like, oh, this is actually not a good fit for me. So knowing all your options up front so that you can lay down some great foundation for for the birth that you want. Yeah, there's about three or four major points there that I was just like, yes, and it's like amazing. And I think I do want to say that it's really important and I feel like my husband would agree with me here is that the partner or the dad, whoever that support person is, is often left in the dark. So the, the, the pregnant person goes to the appointments and even though he came to me for some of them early on in the first pregnancy, no one talked to him. No one said to him what he could expect when your wife goes into a traumatic state and the forceps come out or whatever. It was never discussed. And so he, he felt like his toolbox was empty going in. I mean, we've invited him in. We've asked him to support me. And he said the only thing he learned was to rub my back to get the good hormones going. But he said once that ended, like he said, then there was nothing after, you know. And I think... um a, a, a woman said to me, uh, she wrote the forward for my book and she said, Stephanie, birthing is not a sprint. It is a marathon and it's called labor for a reason. You have to work and it's hard work. Like, and you have to train for that. It's not like you just go in and out comes this baby within a couple of hours. You actually have to mentally, like you were saying, mentally prepare for the long haul. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and I think yeah. like you, after um, I'd arrived at the hospital and I was nine or seven centimeters, I can't quite remember, pretty close at 11. And my midwife, is, I was with midwifery leg care as well. She said, oh, we're going to meet your baby tonight. That was 11 o'clock at night. So I'm thinking, I've got about an hour left. This is crazy. This is cool. Is this what, like, I secretly said to my husband, what do women complain about? <laughs> <laughs> and haha, the joke was on me because, you know, However many, like you said, like 30 hours later with the, you know, the forceps come in and it's all very different, I think that can cause a lot of trauma for women and, you know, they're not expecting it. So, But I do love and I do want to say there's one thing I love about your show, Sophie, is that you do include all births, including, you know, obstetric births and, and traumatic births. And I don't think there's a lot of people actually promoting women to let them share their story about traumatic birth because we don't want to scare women. 
And I do want to talk about that a little bit further on, but I wanted to ask you, out of all the stories that you have done, and correct me if I'm wrong, are we up to about 250 women? Yeah, yeah, 252 yeah. today, yep. Oh, wow, that's huge. Um, is, is there one story that has stuck with you in all of that time? There's so many. I Yeah, it's <laughs> so hard to choose. And I thought about that and I think, oh, yeah, there's so many amazing, incredible stories. I can't really narrow it down, but I did do an interview just this week that was com- in completely unique. Um, so as a young girl who's 23 and she didn't realise she was pregnant until there was a baby on her lap. So she sort of, she yeah, she'd had a number of tests throughout her pregnancy, not knowing she was pregnant and saying like, I'm bloated and I've got all these things and blood tests came back negative because she has PCOS and she was on birth control. And um, okay. she then she thought she had appendicitis and then she produced a baby. So that was pretty staggering. And I've heard those kind of stories before and I'm like, how could you not know when you think about yeah, yeah. like all the kicking and all the different, all the nausea and all the different symptoms. Um, I just think, oh, really? How could you not know? But she 100% didn't know. And um, yeah, it was a really interesting story. And then she then has had quite a lot of trauma trying to process suddenly being a mum, being completely unprepared for that and being sort of robbed of her pregnancy experience and preparing for the baby. So yeah, that story is coming out soon, but I found that was incredibly unique. Yeah. For those who can't see us, obviously my mouth just dropped to the floor (laughs) because like you, I think, oh, that's something that you hear in America. Like, you know, you hear it and you think, is it really true? And you kind of question the, um, you know, how valid it is, but wow, speaking to someone and I can't even imagine did you say she was 23? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Being 35 and having nine months to prepare for the adjustment to motherhood still was, it was like a drop in the pot in the ocean. It still wasn't enough. I can't imagine how she's doing that. Wow. Yeah, she's incredibly Huge. resilient. She's doing a really good job and she's been supported by some fantastic organizations over in um, Perth. So yeah, okay. but definitely That's a different positive. story for me. But I think, yeah, what you were saying as well though about um including all types of stories is so important to me. I know a lot of people that are doing um, like hypnobirth or they're doing home births and stuff and they've got the whole policy of only want to hear positive stories. And I can appreciate that because I know when you're pregnant, people want to tell you their horror stories. But I think when you're preparing in and educating yourself, it's essential for you to hear these stories. So you're not overwhelmed and you're not, um, yeah, if you're suddenly having an emergency cesarean and you haven't entertained the idea of that possibility you've got no idea what to expect and then that can be quite traumatic but if you have taken steps to educate yourself and listen to different experiences then you're going to be um, a lot less caught off guard and more um, emotionally prepared I think. Yeah and I think that leads to a lot of the actual trauma not what happens in the room but the thought processes around well I didn't expect that I didn't know that and I so even throughout my research I have found that things like the word episiotomy is totally missing from the Victorian government on what to expect when you're pregnancy. Now, episiotomies happen a lot in pregnant in, in childbirth, in vaginal too often, childbirth. Too often. But, <laughs> hey? too often. I've had one yeah, as well. And, <laughs> so it's um but it's missing. And so mm. when when at that eleventh hour when I was trying to birth my baby and she was posterior, I had a total stranger walk in and say, I just need to do this episiotomy. I was like, a pezy what? What? And then I think that led to uh, obviously an aspect of the trauma because you do feel blindsided. And that's what I love about the women who talk in your podcast. And 
it's almost like the the secret women's business within a circle, but you share all the secrets, which is amazing. Yeah, yep. Yeah, you know? definitely. And I think I know that people come to my podcast and just skim through and they've asked me uh, various times, can you just make like a positive section? I'm like, no, because I want you to listen to all of them. Yeah, so it's it's very important. Yeah, you know what? In In reflective conversations now, you know, five years down the track, I can honestly say, should had someone had told me what could happen I might have listened but I don't know how much I would have comprehended of that anyway I think it is a very much a lived experience type thing to be able to talk about and to be able to understand so even if um even if someone tried to tell me, you know, like their horror story, I like to call them horrible stories because to me, horror story sounds like they're trying to glorify it as if it was to try and scare people. But I know for myself and my husband in particular, we didn't actually didn't tell anyone for two years and lived in silence because we thought we failed natural childbirth. And I think a lot of women who have had those horrific experiences happen to them personally they often don't say anything. It's the aunties and uncles down the street who kind of say, oh, and such and this happened to such and such. Yeah. <laughs> They're the people that you need to avoid. But I think the people who have had the lived experience, I would never tell a pregnant woman my story if she didn't ask me. I'm not going to impart that on and put that onto someone to try and put fear into someone. My God, no, 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 no. Um, there's definitely ways around it. Yeah, and yeah. I think I want to lead into that is that do you think women – and their partners need to be listening to things in your podcast, you know, the wide variety of journeys. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I put disclaimers at the start of those episodes because I've done um, a series of interviews with medical terminations and stillbirths and um, yeah, various levels of trauma that I think might be triggering for some people. And I find that word hard as well, triggering, because I feel like that that's kind of belittling people's experience and also saying like, don't listen to this because yeah, it, I've, it's, it's challenging. So I just do a warning at the start saying this might not be appropriate for you at this time. Perhaps you're waiting genetic testing and you're worried you've got a particular condition that's raised in this episode. So I don't want to yeah, create any more trauma from pe- for people. Um, but I encourage people in that message to come back to it when they're feeling emotionally ready because yeah, I think it's definitely, I mean, there's some really horrible statistics about stillbirth. So, I mean, yeah, you need to understand that. And then even those episodes, understanding them so that if a friend or somebody has a stillbirth, you perhaps know how to support them. So there's a lot to take away from each of them, not just applying it to your own experience. So yeah, but I've had messages from women point. saying, oh, I was suddenly rushed off for this kind of procedure and I thought of that episode where Emma chose to ask for her own blankets and have her own music in theatre, so I thought, yes, I'll do that. So that kind of feedback is just, yeah, really amazing. I hope, yeah, I can imagine. Um, so uh, as you just said, some of your guests have spoken to you about their traumatic experiences and their birth trauma. I'd be interested to know how do you feel afterwards? Like, do you have someone to debrief with? Because I've listened to some of those. They're heavy, heavy and the images and I'm crying my eyes out because I'm feeling for those um, the women and those partners. How do you do that? That's hard. Yeah, it's hard. I, 
Yeah, one, but when I interviewed Rachel Castillo, oh, I'm not going to say her surname correctly now. <laughs> it's a tricky one. But, um, <laughs> I know the one you, you mean. You know the one I mean. Yeah. Um, she's, yeah, she's called My Life of Love online and she lost her little girl. And that story was heartbreaking. And we both took a break to have a big cry in the middle and then come back to it. Um, so I've definitely, um, cried my way through a few of the interviews and, um, my mum's a psychologist, so I can always talk to her, but it is an interesting, it's usually an intense hour, hour and a half, these interviews, and I'm taking women right back through the experience and they almost, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time I let them just talk freely. So they go into their own zone and walk that whole experience again. And it feels, yeah, it's an unusual goodbye at the end. It's like, oh, thanks for opening your entire heart up to me. Yeah. And then yeah. I, I mean, I often just ask them what they're doing for the rest of the day and, you know, do they have support? And um, often those people are already having treatment and therapy. And um, if not, we can always try and like find them something. But um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's exhausting holding that space sometimes as well. But I think so powerful and so important that it's definitely worth it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, I can't imagine, but it's so nice to hear that you're actually allowing yourself to take that break and have those emotions during the show, even if you don't end up sharing that with the world because we're, it shows that we're all human and it's, um, birthing is it's intense. <laughs> yeah. And it's often a goodbye at the end of the episode, but we often talk for quite a while afterwards as well. There's a lot before and after that's not, that's not shared. So it's not as abrupt as it sounds. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And I think it's really good to know that, that people do have support. I mean, um, in this birth trauma space, uh, I have monthly counseling. I, I went through a phase of going, no, I'm okay. And then realizing that, yeah, I'm probably not okay. And it, they're really busy. So I just book a year in advance now. So once a month, be able to check in, work through stuff. And if I'm feeling okay at the time, then we talk about other stuff. There's other you know, there's other skeletons, there's cancer skeletons in my closet. I probably have to deal with it at some point, but it's just one thing at a time, you know. Um, so I think you've already, you know, kind of answered the next question and how the women in their birthing stories has helped um, and helped them with their own births. And you've obviously received a lot of the feedback. Do you ever get any contact from the dads or partners saying this really helped me as well? Yeah, um, I've had, I've done a couple of episodes with dads and I want to try and do more of those. Um, mm. logistically, it's kind of hard because often one, one, one of the parents is holding the baby or minding the children while we do the interview. So that's tricky. Um, yeah, but I think that's really important. I did a really nice Father's Day episode talking to dads about, um, what they'd pass on to other new dads that, um, yeah, and I think that was a really nice one. Um, but I do get feedback. I've had some really nice feedback about my new birth class that the dads are enjoying that oh, because yeah. it's audio only and they can listen when it suits them. So it's less, um, they're not forced to come and sit down in a room full of people they don't know or sit down and watch videos. So I've had some lovely feedback, which I wasn't perhaps expecting from that, just saying, oh, it's so good. I just like stick it in my ears on the way to work. And um, it's been really great in starting opening conversations with their partner about birth preparation. So yeah, it's been, been lovely. That's fabulous. Yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. So um, would you say that, that there are ways to educate parts of birth or elements of birth that we can share with mums and dads and partners without scaring women? Like, is there, is there things that we can be doing that are helpful, 
but they're not putting the fear into people. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think that's why I've also incorporated like cesareans in my course. I think a lot of courses don't include that and it takes you, so a midwife takes you right through what to expect in a cesarean. So even though I'm not trying to, um, somebody who's wanting a low intervention birth and just to perhaps have a water birth and have do it all themselves and breathe their baby out, I still would really love for them to listen to that component and I don't think it's conducted in a scary way. It's more of an informative way of, look, you'll be offered this medication and then these things will happen and this is how many people will be in the room um, without, yeah, giving them that, yeah, the the trauma and the the fear, just the education really. So, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I, I lo- think there's I've, definite ways I've got this doing. big smile on my face because... Um, obviously after the first birth we wanted a natural birth and, and I was huge into that um, realm of, of um, way of birthing and during that process I was curious about cesarean and I remember asking a couple of times to my care providers well what is it and it was always very dismissed saying oh you don't need to worry about that You're, you are going to breathe this baby down stop stressing Stephanie you're such a worry wart that type of stuff and it wasn't until my second pregnancy and I think people just just tend to do this. If they've had a traumatic experience, they kind of want to go in the opposite direction. So for my second birth, I did find an obstetrician in a private hospital just because I didn't feel like I could walk back into the hospital where I had my first birth. And I said to him, I need a cesarean. I can't do this. I've got a massive prolapse. I've had hor- horrible trauma. I can't do it. And he then said, well, do you even know what a cesarean is? And I said, no. <laughs> And then he talked me through the process step by step. So step one, this would happen. Then this would happen. And by the end of that conversation, I was like, hmm, yeah, it doesn't sound as easy as what they make out, actually. It's not just like a zipper and you pull Bubba out and then you just can't drive for six weeks. Like that was my um, very uneducated understanding of a Caesar. And so we obviously had conversations over the nine months. It wasn't very um, quick and easy. But I still wanted a Caesar because of I was scared. And it was him that helped me work through this, along with the counsellor, that a second vaginal birth would probably be better for me anyway. And then t- gave me all of that education on more. Well, this, is what, this is where your bladder will go. We'll birth you on your left-hand side. And I was so educated to the point where I got to say, okay, I can now make a choice. And I do want to try for a vaginal birth. It was so um, cathartic. It was very healing, I guess, having someone listen to you and educate you. And there was no gender. He didn't care either way what I wanted to do. He supported me and I changed my mind about 50 times. Um, And he said to me, you know what, Steph, even if you're mentally not okay or if anything starts to kind of not go to plan in labor, we can still do that. We can still this, we can still do plan A to Z. It was so good. Yeah, and then you're empowered to make that decision. And I think that's the same with like when you're learning, like we go through every intervention that you can choose from um, Yes. with another midwife. And, and then if you get to a point where you say, yes, I want an epidural, then perhaps initially you want a, a drug-free birth, but you think, I know that the epidural is going to be a slightly longer recovery. I know that it might impact my breastfeeding in the first 24 hours. It might do this, that, and the other, but you're choosing it 
knowing all of those things and you don't feel like somebody's throwing it on you or you were just panicked and grabbed for it, then it's a completely different recovery if you felt like you knew what your options were and you chose from, yeah, an educated point of view. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I found, you know, even the fact that he was open, like obviously we had a midwife there as well. Her name was Sean. She was beautiful. Um, but it, even things like having a doula in the room. I mean, apparently that's unheard of in obstetrics. <laughs> I don't know if I've just got this unicorn type guy, but he said, well, if you need that, you can have that. You know what I mean? And a lot, I think before that, I didn't, I heard, I've heard of the word doula in my first birth, but I didn't really know what they did. I didn't really know what their role was. And I wish I would have had someone like that for my husband in particular to support him so he could have supported me. So I love that, you know, you, you kind of go into depth with all of those things on what they do, who they are, how they can help. It's, um, yeah, it's really, really good. Um, so how can we, women in particular, at home, now listening, support our soon-to-be mamas in their journey to motherhood and I guess beyond, really? I think it's so incredibly challenging at the moment. I mean, you're in New South Wales, I'm in Victoria, we're both locked down. And I think even when you mentioned doula, then it almost makes my um, hair stand on end because they're beautiful and so important, particularly for people who've had previous trauma. And at the moment, no one can have them. So um, it's, yeah, and birth photography and all those different things that people are trying to bring into the birth space to give them the better experiences that they're hoping for. So we just, um, I mean, all we can really do at the moment is Zoom calls and telephone calls. And I think call a lot more than you would normally. Um, obviously, don't be badgering and don't do that when you're waiting for the baby to arrive. But postnatally, yes. it's just so important. And obviously, um, we can only travel in 5Ks here. But if you can deliver meals or even there's some fantastic postpartum meal companies now. Um, yes. I can give you some names of them if you want to put them in the show notes too, but from right around yes, Australia, please. they're just ordering a, a beautiful meal pack with lactation cookies and teas and meals and having that stuff organized. Or if you can locally organize a meal train or something like that to take the pressure off. Cause a lot of people are too, particularly now, I think everyone's got their own um, challenges to deal with, with lockdown and homeschool and family dynamics and things. Yes. But yeah, you, I think postnatally women are just slipping through the cracks and they're not having, a lot of them aren't having that face-to-face midwifery appointments and follow-up and yes. um, the mother's group, early yeah, mother's group. Yeah, and that's yeah. just different in Zoom. And I think also um, I read a study the other day saying that they were, um, I can't remember who put it out, but they were evaluating kind of um, the telephone appointments for antenatal and they're saying women are do- our outcomes are fantastic women are now taking their own blood pressure and doing all these things and I felt sick just thinking oh <laughs> all the things and even just you know when you at your own antenatal appointment in person and you go to the door and you're like oh just before I go I forgot to tell you that I'm really itchy or whatever and they're really essential things that you're sharing that you wouldn't perhaps do over the phone or you wouldn't remember or you don't have that rapport and that connection and eye contact and stuff like that and I just think yeah it's going to be really concerning to see how that impact of all of this unfolds over the coming years because I think we're kind of like talking about it now but no one's really being able to see the issues because women because we're all behind closed doors even more so I mean it's challenging even when we're not in lockdown but it's like amplified now isn't it yes yeah and I think uh 
even pre-lockdown and pre-COVID, women were kind of saying, looking around going, hey, where's my village? I can't find my village people, but I'm too scared to say anything because I'm supposed to be a major, amazing super mom who can, you know, still pay half the mortgage and be a mom and do all of the amazing things. Um, but I do feel like people are missing that village more than ever. And I love your idea about the meal train. We had that given to us by some our local church friends who dropped a meal at the door at six o'clock or five o'clock every night, just knock and run, you know, no, no obligation. And I think if you are within a radius of someone, you can still do that. But the other one was the dinner ladies. Was that oh, yeah, one of the ones yeah. you were thinking? Dinner ladies, because they were really nutritious. It wasn't just quick grab takeaway food. It was actually food that would nourish mom so she can nourish baby and, and function. But um, other than that, though, I don't really know. There's a lot of things we can be doing, is there? And that's that's hard. And it's unique in the fact that everyone's got challenges at the same time. I think in a normal, pre-COVID, you'd have like someone's having a baby and everyone would invest all their energy into supporting them. But when we're all being challenged at the same time, it just leaves everybody depleted and having less time and energy to give. So, yeah, it's really sad. And it's taking away that special time of really being nurtured by your friends and your family when I'm sure they all really desperately want to do that for you and, and we're all sort of physically isolated. So, yeah, yeah I mean, there are, no are some fantastic resources, which I'm sure you share regularly with um, Panda and Cope, and um, they're, they're already saying that they're just being inundated. So, um, the yeah, but they've got some fantastic Absolutely. resources. Yeah, and I think we could probably only just stress to the women listening today if they've, you know, got baby bump or they've just had a newborn baby to reach out and don't worry about the stigma that you think you've got to hold it all together, especially now. And I think that was, like I said, that was me for the first kind of two years. I met with a mother's group every single Friday and they obviously knew I had a traumatic birth because I talked about that, but I'd never shared anything about prolapse and how I can't actually walk or stand for too long I hid it for so long and it wasn't until they read my book they said oh why didn't you tell us I'm like I didn't know how to I didn't know the words and I think for a lot of people at home with this newborn baby they actually don't know the words to put their hand up and say I'm really struggling with this why didn't anyone tell me that it was this hard you know that the sleep deprivation or adjusting to breastfeeding or Whatever the element is, there's so many elements going on at once that they don't actually know to say, I, I need help. I don't know what with, I just need help. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's, I think, um, yeah, it's hard. I've got prolapse issues from forceps and episiotomies from my first as well. And um, I shared on Instagram one time about my prolapse and what I was doing in mum's like, I think that's oversharing. I don't, I think you're going to regret oh. saying that. And I'm like, no, oh, prolapse you? doesn't have to be a term that old ladies use anymore. Like I, I'm not sure you probably know the stats better than me, but how um, common it is post birth. 50%. 50%. There you go. So one yeah. two. And I'm like, you don't have to pretend anymore. It's more supportive if everyone knows. And they're like, and then all the, yeah, like I talk about it often. We're always like, oh, I can't. And some of the mums run. I'm like, how do you run post three kids? And like, oh, well, I did my pelvic floor exercises for two years before I could get back. And we talk about it openly. So hopefully this generation moving forward is more open to discussing it. Thank you for just sharing that because I, I think I remember reading something, but I wasn't 100% yeah, yeah. and I didn't want to be rude and pry oh, and no, ask no. you in mid-interview but um 
So do you know if your prolapse was caused with the use of like, was it rotational forceps? Meaning like, did you have um, muscle torn off the bone? Um, I haven't, I shouldn't need to explore. I do regularly see a women's health physio and she thinks it's from um, the forceps rather than the episiotomy that I had done. And it didn't affect um, my two vaginal births prior to that but I'm definitely sure it was from that big boy and the forceps and um yeah she thinks I need to explore that but she said um I should probably get ultrasound to double check that but it's yeah it's muscular like it's permanent damage and I yeah to a point where doing my pelvic floor exercises helps but it's not I'm gonna need like surgery down the track for that as well but um yeah yeah but I think talking about pessaries and all those sorts of things and all the things that are on offer I think just makes it normalizes it and and yeah, yeah. De- destigmatizes it as well because prolapse is something that I never knew about. And when the doctor first told me what it was, I immediately thought of like my 86-year-old grandma who never told anyone, but I knew that there was this secret <laughs> secret women's business. And I think um, that's part of this journey. The whole reason for this podcast is to open those conversations with our own girls, you know, with our own. And I I do point out with my son as well, because it's just as important for him to understand and be able to to support someone because my husband has no, had, I should say, had no idea how to support someone with prolapse because he'd never heard of it himself. Yeah. yeah. Um, But yet I'm pretty sure at some point the women in his family probably do know about it, but they'd never talked to him about it. And I think that's the conversational change we're hoping to do so that when my, I even, um, I was interviewing a lady yesterday and I said to her, how young should I start talking to my kids about their pelvic floor? And she said, now, because when they do a poo, they're using their pelvic floor to release and coil back. And you tell them, you know, sometimes they get constipated, talk to them about that, why that happens and and how that can help. I'm like, wow, yeah, that doesn't sound yucky. That doesn't sound like too over-sexualized, like I'm teaching my kids too much and because you always worry about the judgment. My daughter knows the difference between her vagina and her vulva. And I think that's important given that I knew nothing about that before before having a baby even. Like that's embarrassing. 35 and I didn't know I had two different things. I thought they were just a vagina. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I think we can overthink that education too because my seven-year-old and five-year-old know, now know about periods and that wasn't because I sat them down to tell them, but it's like, why are you bleeding? Like, why is there blood on the sheet? And they're like, okay, so we're having this conversation now. Um, yeah, so I think just being open and relaxed about those sorts of things and making it just, oh, they're bodily issues rather than this big private secret topic. Yeah, I think then it becomes less of a taboo and less they're less curious about it then. So now that they yeah. your, your boys know about periods, they're not going to like, hoo-hoo, giggles. At, when the girls are 13 at their school getting it, they're like, oh, we know what that is. Yeah. We know how to. We know how to support you with that. We can be cool with that. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> Those incidental things. That's yeah. really cool. Um, so, Sophie, if our listeners wanted to connect and tune into your podcast um, and check out your programs, actually, I'm going to ask you, can you share with us a little bit more about your program? Because I'm interested to know. Yeah, so uh, for quite a while now, I've had a postpartum program and it's called Discovering Motherhood. And that's um, there's eight interviews in that series talk talking and educating you through the postpartum period. So everything from breastfeeding and how to navigate that right through to postpartum depletion with um, Oscar Serilac. And we do a whole section on pelvic floor and prolapse and um, that kind of recovery. And yeah, the idea is you listen to that in sort of fourth trimester and perhaps re-listen 
oh, sorry, in third trimester and then re-listen in fourth trimester um, just so you know what's coming and then you can address it with, with the skills um, when you're ready to. Um, but most recently I've just brought out my um, childbirth education course, which is called okay. the birth class. And that's, um, there's nine audio modules. So it's all, in a like a podcast format. So you just get an app and listen to that. And it comes with an 80 page color illustrated workbook, which has got checklists and hospital bag checklists. And, um, it also includes, um, meditations and breathing exercises. So yeah, that's my Wonderful. latest project. And I've got another, um, a breastfeeding guide teaching you how to do antenatal expressing and, um, oh, soon, yes. soon to have like a book. So we're writing a book as well. <laughs> Just, oh wow! Just a few things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, busy, busy, busy. So is this is this a book? Are you allowed to share much about it? Is yeah, it yep. So I'm doing. Um, I've signed a contract with Murdoch, and um, the book's not coming out until February 2023. So it's a bit of a long okay. run, and um, it's a pregnancy and childbirth education guide. So it's quite complex and um, comprehensive. So we've got a long time to write it. So yeah, so that'll be yes. exciting. Awesome. And I'm assuming that some of the women's journeys will be included in that book, like keeping it really unbiased and open and just like the podcast. Yeah. Yep. It's really educational, informative. So it covers each trimester and their birth preparation and the birth. And um, yeah, throughout that, we've weaved in stories from the podcast and interviews I've done with different experts as well. So yeah, it's really exciting. Wonderful. Oh, that's so good. Actually, um, it just made me think that one, some of the feedback or some of the the amazing feedback that if people have messaged me after reading my book because it is so it can be confronting the day my vagina broke and people say we don't want to scare women I wouldn't share it with my pregnant friend until they read it and then they say oh okay it's probably a little bit not as scary as I thought because at the end of every chapter there are reflective questions on have you considered this have you thought about that is your insurance up to, you know things where people can actually take away and do something with it's not just telling a story so I think um, that's always a good way to kind of end a chapter is to say, you know, you've read this, now how could you implement it into yeah. your, yeah, I can't wait to read your book. Yeah, That'd be amazing. Yeah. Um, but if people want to listen to the podcast, that's just through um, All Good Podcast apps and it's Australian yep. Birth Stories. And um, Great. you have got a beautiful community on Instagram, um, which is Australian Birth Stories fantastic and we'll definitely put that in the show notes all the links on where people can find you but it's been lovely to talk with you today Sophie thanks yeah, for you coming too. on thanks so much thanks. for having me <laughs> it was truly a joy chatting with Sophie from Australian Birth Stories today her new book sounds like it could be that change that we need to see in this prenatal space. I look forward to uh, reading it sometime next year. In our next episode, you'll find out what ucha means and how it can help you whilst on the loo. The lovely Bernadette from Core and Floor Restore gives us the lowdown on all things prolapse and your pelvic health. Hey. Mommy